the Constitution is meant not only to protect us in times of peace, but more importantly, to protect us, the people, in times of national crisis. Our founding fathers understood this. A Japanese-American citizen is arrested and sent to a U.S. concentration camp, and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment is put to the test in this episode of Lockdown Law. Episode 1, Korematsu versus the United States, decided in December 1944. Why is it important to learn about past cases? Stare decisis is an important legal principle and is Latin for to stand by things decided. Basically, Supreme Court justices try to follow precedent. So before we get into the current cases, let's start this podcast off with some history. The horror and violence of World War II began in 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland. However, the U.S. remained out of the conflict until December 7, 1941. A day that shall live in infamy, famously proclaimed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our country's longest-serving president. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might 
will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. December 7th, 1941 was, of course, the day that the Japanese Imperial Empire attacked Pearl Harbor, which is located in Hawaii. Japan was allied with Hitler Germany, and thus the U.S. was forced into World War II. Again, Korematsu's case was decided in December of 1944. At that point, the D-Day invasion was a success just a few months earlier, in June of 1944. Remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? Classic. But by no means was the U.S. assured world victory despite the success of D-Day. The U.S. public was still feeling uneasy about the war in 1944, and Fred Korematsu played a terrible price. Fred Korematsu was born in Oakland, California, on January 30, 1919. He was the third of four sons to Japanese immigrant parents who ran a floral nursery business in Oakland, California. After the U.S. entered World War II, Korematsu actually tried to enlist in the U.S. National Guard and U.S. Coast Guard but was turned away by military officers who discriminated against him due to his Japanese ancestry. Korematsu then trained to become a welder, eventually working at the docks in Oakland as a shipyard welder and quickly rising through the ranks to foreman. One day, when he arrived at work, he was suddenly fired from his job due to his Japanese ancestry. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President FDR signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, authorizing the U.S. military to remove over 120,000 people of Japanese descent, the majority of whom were American citizens, from their homes and forced them into American prison camps throughout the United States. Fred Korematsu chose to defy the order and carry on his life as an American citizen. 
He even went as far, ladies and gentlemen, to undergo minor plastic surgery to alter his eyes in an attempt to look less Japanese. He also changed his name to Clyde Sarah and claimed to be of Spanish and Hawaiian descent. But unfortunately, this wasn't enough. On May 30th, 1942, he was arrested on a street corner in San Leandro, California. He was taken to San Francisco County Jail. On September 8th, 1942, Korematsu was convicted in federal court for violating the military orders issued under Executive Order 9066. He was placed on a five-year probation. For several months, he lived at the Tanforan Assembly Center in San Bruno, California, one of the former horse racing tracks where Japanese Americans were first held before being sent to the more permanent American concentration camps. Korematsu and his family were transferred from Tanforan to Topaz, Utah, where the government had set up one of 10 incarceration camps for Japanese Americans. Believing the discriminatory conviction went against freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution, Korematsu appealed his case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In its December 1944 landmark decision, the High Court ruled against him in a 6-3 decision, declaring that the incarceration was not caused by racism and was justified by the Army's claims that Japanese Americans were prone to disloyalty. The court called the incarceration a military necessity. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed a special commission to instigate a federal review of the facts and circumstances around the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. In June 1983, the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians concluded that the decisions to remove those people of Japanese ancestry to U.S. prison camps occurred because of race, prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. It was on the basis of governmental misconduct that a legal team of pro bono, that means voluntary and free of charge, attorneys, including the Asian Law Caucus, successfully reopened Korematsu's case in 1983, resulting in the overturning of his criminal conviction for defying the incarceration. During the litigation, U.S. Justice Department lawyers are offered a pardon to Korematsu if he would agree to drop his lawsuit. In rejecting the offer, Catherine Korematsu remarked, Fred was not interested in a pardon. Instead, he always felt that it was the government who should seek a pardon from him and from Japanese Americans for the wrong that was committed. What a powerful statement, folks. 
On November 10, 1983, Judge Marilyn Hall Patel of the U.S. District Court of Northern California in San Francisco formally overturned Korematsu's conviction. It was a pivotal moment in U.S. civil rights history. After his conviction was overturned, Korematsu became an active member of the National Coalition for Redress and Reparations. He traveled to Washington, D.C. and helped lobby for the passage of the bill which would grant an official apology from the U.S. government and a token compensation of $20,000 for each surviving Japanese American that was incarcerated. In 2010, the state of California passed the Fred Korematsu Day Bill, making January 30th the first day in the U.S. named after an Asian American. Although the American government interned thousands of Japanese Americans and also seized property from them, there was not one Japanese American ever convicted of treason. Think about that. Not one Japanese American was ever convicted of treason. In Korematsu's case, there was absolutely no evidence that he was ever disloyal to America. All the evidence was quite the contrary. He actually tried to enlist in the U.S. military to help the U.S. with the war effort against Japan. Fred Korematsu was an all-American hero in my eyes. Now, the court did apply the strict scrutiny standard in this case to the government's actions, and usually the government loses in these scenarios. However, the government prevailed because of the wartime hysteria and this case was wrongly decided and was a tragic moment for the U.S. Supreme Court. This case is so important for many different reasons. First, it outlines the standard of review. Strict scrutiny is the highest standard of review, which a court will use to evaluate the constitutionality of governmental discrimination. The other two standards are intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis review. To pass strict scrutiny, the legislature must have passed the law to further a compelling governmental interest and must have narrowly tailored the law to achieve that interest. Strict scrutiny will often be invoked in an equal protection claim. For a court to apply strict scrutiny, the legislature must either have passed a law that infringes upon a fundamental right, we will discuss what this is later in this season, or involves a suspect classification. Now, a suspect classification, that would include race, national origin, 
religion, and alienage. The application of strict scrutiny also applies to restrictions on content-based speech. We will discuss this later in the season as well. Intermediate scrutiny is only invoked when a state or the federal government passes a statute which negatively affects certain protected classes. To pass intermediate scrutiny, the challenged law must 1. Further an important government interest 2. And must do so by means that are substantially related to that interest. The Supreme Court has used the intermediate scrutiny standard mainly in gender discrimination cases and some First Amendment cases. The easiest one and the last one in terms of the standards of review is the rational basis test and the statute or ordinance must have a legitimate state interest and there must be a rational connection between the statute's means and goals. The rational basis test is generally used when cases where no fundamental right or suspect classification are at issue. So those are the three standards of review, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis review. Strict scrutiny, when that's applied by the courts, the government usually loses. If, it, if the rational basis test is used, then the government usually prevails. Now, what are the lessons from this case? What are some of the things that we've learned in the Fred Korematsu case? To me, the most important thing is we need to avoid generalizations during times of crisis. Let's look at some comparisons today surrounding COVID-19, and they are many. Let's just take one. For example, the government at one point said, absolutely, you can't go to church. Okay, let's take, let's take this step by step from what we have learned. Does the government have a compelling interest in preventing people from mass gatherings during the COVID-19 pandemic? Now, you could debate this a bit, maybe in hotspots, yes, but in non-hotspots, no. But for the sake of argument, let's say yes. The government absolutely has a compelling interest in preventing the spread of the deadly disease. Okay. Well, is it narrowly tailored? This is where it falls apart, in my opinion. I believe the answer is no. For example, what if there was a church that planned an outdoor mass no handshaking, no sharing of communion, and only 10 people who socially distance 20 feet apart are allowed. That seems reasonable to me. And that's why the Constitution does not allow for overbroad generalizations. Now, it's easy to state things are unconstitutional, but it's hard to understand why. And that's an important part of this podcast. In this first episode, you learn two important constitutional legal principles. You learn the standards of review, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, rational basis, and you learned why legal precedent is important. This will be part of the foundation 
to help you follow future episodes. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. The best is yet to come. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.